Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about prosecutorial immunity. Prosecutorial immunity is the idea that you can't hold a prosecutor responsible for violating your civil rights, as long as they claim they were doing their job. Whether it's withholding evidence that could exonerate you, or putting a witness that they know is lying on the stand, you can't sue a prosecutor for damages. On top of that, prosecutorial immunity directly contravenes legislation passed by Congress. As you'll hear, the doctrine was developed by judges and justices who have consistently ruled in favor of prosecutors when citizens have attempted to hold them accountable for their misdeeds. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have left our nation feeble and pathetic, like an Eagles fan complaining about the refs. Mm, got him. Wow. I'm Peter. You won, and now you got to rub it in, too. I'm Peter, victorious. We're going to lose subscribers. <laughs> I'm here with Rhiannon. Hi. And Michael. Hey, everybody. Yeah, there were some people in the Slack last night saying, if you do a, uh, an anti-Philly metaphor, I'm unsubscribing. And I said, unsubscribe now then, bitch. <laughs> you, know, you might as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, just rolling in it. Look, I went to Philly to watch the game, so I get to make fun of Philadelphians after winning. That's I risked my life. He's wearing a <laughs> Kansas City t-shirt right now, by the way. Absolutely, As I we am. speak, yeah. in the Zoom, that's yes. what I'm looking at. <laughs> Look, all respect for Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, but the fucking referees <laughs> ruined this game. You know, you can't, you can't grab a little jersey no more. All of a sudden, that draw is illegal. Have a water ice to reassure yourselves. <laughs> I'm going to go down to Rita's, grab a water ice, maybe go to Wawa, uh, get a couple of hoagies and go throw some bricks off the overpass. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's good, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're talking about prosecutorial immunity. And what that means is immunity from lawsuits for prosecutors who engage in a little bit of misconduct. As you know, in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. Mm, heard right. that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> dun, dun. Yeah, you heard that on five to four when I made it up. <laughs> this is a story about how both of them are functionally immune from civil liability for their uh, egregious misconduct. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. And so you may not be surprised to hear that the Supreme Court is, in fact, the primary culprit of a lot of this. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think to sort of understand prosecutorial immunity, you need to understand Section 1983. Yeah, Which we've talked about a bunch, but Ray, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you give the like relevant background here. Yeah, thanks for letting me. You're welcome. <laughs> so there is a law referred to as Section 1983 that allows people to sue state officials. Right, that law originated in the Reconstruction era, actually 1871. So if we're thinking about 1871, hmm, why would Congress think in 1871 that we needed a law allowing lawsuits against state officials? Hmm. Is anything weird happening around? 
(laughs) Something in the water. It should be relatively obvious, right? The law was designed to protect freed slaves against misconduct by, at that time, southern state officials, right? Mm -hmm. The law itself contains no notable exceptions, right? It doesn't make any state officials immune from liability. Broadly, what Section 1983 allows you to do is sue in civil court over civil rights violations. I'm going to be really, really broad here. If you do, as a practicing attorney, if you do civil rights litigation, I'm thinking about like Josh Ehrlich and Heather Murray in our Slack. Do not yell at me. You're not allowed to yell at me. It is illegal (laughs) to yell at me and I will sue you for damages. So I just want to (laughs) say... I took civil rights litigation during law school and I was so confused from jump because I never understood like this very basic overview in layman's terms what is going on here. Okay, so Section 1983 says that you can sue for damages, meaning money compensation, for the violation of your constitutional rights. Here's a shortened version of literally Section 1983, what it says. Every person who, under state law or custom or usage, subjects any person to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws shall be liable to the party injured. So again, that's a shortened, it's slightly edited version of the law, but that's it. There are no exceptions. There are no complicated subsections in this part of the law. It's literally two sentences long. And the second sentence just specifies that D.C. falls under this provision as well. Right. It's pretty fucking clear. Mm -hmm. So just to add a little bit to the history here, we should point out that it was drafted in this section of the code, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. But the whole law, which includes Section 1983, has a few sections that apply to different stuff. It was literally called the Ku Klux Klan Act. Hmm. Very clear what Congress is doing, right? Mm -hmm. Another point about the history here is that the 14th Amendment has just been ratified literally three years before in 1868. So you see like what the early Reconstruction Congress is doing, creating first this new broad set of federal constitutional rights in the Reconstruction Amendments and then passing this broad statute to allow individuals to sue when those rights are violated. Mm. Again, like very clear A to B here. Yeah. They've been unfortunately taken over by wokeism. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. right. The woke Reconstruction Congress. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, Section 1983 isn't like used very much. You know, it certainly like doesn't come up to the Supreme Court or anything. The first major use of Section 1983 in terms of civil rights litigation, as we think about it today, was in the 1960s in a case called Monroe v. Pate. 90 years. Yeah. 90 years. It's fucking wild. Yeah. Now, in that case, 13 city of Chicago police officers ransacked the home of the Monroe family without a warrant. They pulled the parents out of their bedroom. They made them stand naked while the police tore everything up. They shredded their mattresses. They turned everything over. They detained and questioned the father for hours about a murder he didn't commit. You know, he is released at the end of the questioning, but the Monroe family sued under Section 1983, saying, This was a violation of our Fourth Amendment rights. We are suing these police officers, right? And the Supreme Court at the time, under Chief Justice Earl Warren, 
ruled that their lawsuit could move forward. You can use Section 1983 for suing these fucking pigs because they're state officials acting under the authority of law. Mm -hmm. That's what Section 1983 says. Mm -hmm. And there you basically begin a new era in civil rights litigation, right? Right. So in this episode, we're talking about prosecutors here, but you get the idea for how 1983 would work. If a prosecutor and state prosecutors are state officials, if a prosecutor acting under state law violates your constitutional rights, Section 1983, in theory, seems to say that you should be able to sue them for damages. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. End of episode. (laughs) Yeah. Things are great. So that's the Warren court stepping in in the 60s and saying like, yeah, you know, you can proceed with these types of lawsuits. That's what the law says. But then we get to the 70s. The construction of the Supreme Court changes. And in 1976, in a case called Imbler v. Pactman, the court decided that actually prosecutors should be immune from lawsuits under 1983. And not just immune sometimes, in some situations, but given absolute immunity for conduct they engaged in while in the business of prosecution. What they said was like, sure, 1983 allows for lawsuits against state officials, but historically, certain officials like prosecutors have always been immune from those types of lawsuits under our common law, right? Like this 1983 is a statute, but you also have the common law, which is a judge-made law. And historically, there's been common law saying that certain officials are immune from lawsuit because we don't want to dissuade them from having to do their public duties, etc. Right now, there's a weird little quirk here where the common law that they're citing dates back to 1890, hmm. which is after the statute was <laughs> passed. So it's weird that we're like changing what the statute says based on judge-made law that right. post-dates it. Mm-hmm. But that was enough. <laughs> so they said prosecutors are immune from liability for the things they do while acting as prosecutors, basically because we've always done it that way. Yeah. And the court also mentioned some public policy benefits. A couple of quotes for you here. Quote, although such immunity leaves the genuinely wronged criminal defendant without civil redress against a prosecutor whose malicious or dishonest action deprives him of liberty, the alternative of qualifying a prosecutor's immunity would disserve the broader public interest in that it would prevent the vigorous and fearless performance of the prosecutor's duty that is essential to the proper functioning of the criminal justice system. Mm. So basically, if you could sue prosecutors ever... That would reduce their fearlessness, uh, which is bad. I guess you want your prosecutors <laughs> fearless, right? Yeah. I guess it's implied that you want your public defenders very scared, right? Because they can't both be fearless. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, yeah. Basically, what this quote is saying is like we need prosecutors to be able to act with impunity. Yeah, that's literally that is it's, that's it. It's, yeah, we need yeah. prosecutors to be able to act like they will never be held accountable for something they did wrong. Yeah. yeah. Period. Now, another quote from the court, I believe they are quoting themselves a uh, lower court. It has been thought in the end better to leave unredressed the wrongs done by dishonest officers than to subject those who try to do their duty 
to the constant dread of retaliation. <laughs> Has that been thought? Yeah. No, it's been thought. Do we think that? I mean, you have to admit it's been thought. You have to admit it's been thought. <laughs> I have evidence right here in, in the Supreme Court reporter that it's been thought. I, I thought it. I thought it. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. Right? Just like, what if prosecutors were a little bit scared that their misconduct might come back on them? Right. Like, I'm sorry, but isn't this just the same argument for, like, nothing being illegal at all? Like, well, what yeah. if then right. you were scared to do stuff? Yeah. Like, well, business fraud shouldn't be illegal because then you'd be afraid when conducting business that maybe you would engage in some fraud inadvertently or something. Right. 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 You know, this has me thinking a lot all of a sudden about like medical malpractice. Right. I mean, there are a lot of arguments for why like lawsuits against doctors and hospitals can get out of control, can kind of limit what doctors feel like they can do in giving care to people. But like nobody says doctors should be immune. Right. Right. They have the capacity to do major harm in people's lives. Their actions can kill people. Right. And there is recourse for that legal recourse. And so, yeah, it's a really frustrating, but also like disingenuous area of the law where it's like just these officials get to act with impunity, you know? The policy preference is that they be immune. Right. But, you know, the court has narrowed this a little bit since then, right? Like the Supreme Court has looked at this. And for the most part, you know, when they look at this stuff again, it's just what sort of stuff does and does not count as like the prosecutorial duties acting as a prosecutor. Right. So like there was a case saying that prosecutors can't like elicit false confessions and be immune because that's more investigatory. That's right. more, that's like prior to the prosecution, they're acting more like a cop there. Right. And so uh, no absolute immunity there. Right. Thank you, Supreme Court. Right. <laughs> Heroes. But, you know, there are still a huge range of awful conduct that is immune. You know, we just reran last week our episode on uh, Connick v. Thompson, where, you know, the prosecutors basically knowingly prosecuted an innocent man and sought and got the death penalty. And he spent 18 years in jail, 14 on death row, had an execution date several times. They tried to kill this guy knowing he was innocent, knowing that they had all sorts of evidence that he was innocent. That's immune. You can't sue them for that. They are totally immune for that, uh, which is why that case was all about whether the entire office had these like patterns and practices of this behavior because the individual prosecutors were all immune for their individual behavior in that case. Right. You know, if a cop tells a prosecutor that he's going to go lie on the stand and the prosecutor puts him up on the stand anyway, he's immune for that knowingly suborning perjury. Immune. There's no end to it. Right. <sighs> fucking cases, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> One thing we should have done for this episode is conjure up examples of things that we think under the case law would be allowed. Well, there are so many like real life examples. Like I'm reminded of a case I think that came out of Brooklyn, New York a few years back where Jabbar Collins, 
had been in jail for more than 16 years for murder that he did not commit. And he was only freed when it was revealed at a post-conviction hearing that the main witness who had testified against him at trial, who had said that Mr. Collins had committed murder, that witness had told the prosecutor that he had been pressured by police to lie about Mr. Collins's involvement in the murder. The prosecutor never shared that information with Mr. Collins's lawyer. That is an egregious violation of the law. That is a violation of a lawyer's ethical duty. Nevertheless, that prosecutor is, in terms of an individual capacity to be sued, that prosecutor was immune from lawsuit. Mr. Collins cannot sue that person for eliciting that testimony on the stand. Another example, my home state of Texas, Cameron Todd Willingham. He was put on trial for the murder of his three children, allegedly by intentionally setting a fire in his family home in 1991. Mr. Willingham was executed by the state of Texas in 2004. But that entire case was built on extremely junk, debunked, fire science, as well as the testimony of a witness who prosecutors failed to disclose had made a favorable deal with the government for that testimony. The evidence that Mr. Willingham was likely innocent was extremely clear long before his execution. Prosecutors blocked and stonewalled the appeals process. Prosecutors, with the help of then-Governor Rick Perry, refused to grant him clemency. The Board of Pardons refused to consider new evidence. Mr. Willingham was executed in Texas. Those prosecutors who knowingly brought debunked, awful science to the jury in that trial, those prosecutors cannot be sued. They are immune from lawsuit. And a person died. This stuff is its so perverse that prosecutors can do stuff that is so above and beyond malfeasance that it's literally illegal, it's a crime, and they can potentially go to jail for their behavior. And still, the victims <laughs> of their crime right. cannot sue them for that behavior, right? Yeah. right? Absolute immunity means absolute immunity. They can criminally violate your civil rights and you have no recourse. Right. You know, it's probably worth reiterating. We've talked about habeas corpus, for example, and all of these mechanisms that criminal defendants ostensibly have to vindicate their rights and how difficult those are, right? So on one hand, prosecutors can do basically anything and suffer no penalties. On the other hand, if you're a criminal defendant who's trying to vindicate their rights, you have to jump through this fucking American Ninja Warrior course full of uh, procedural hurdles yes. just for like the Supreme Court to even hear you out. Yes. It's fucking obscene. It's ludicrous. Right. Mm -hmm. It's silly. I'll say it. Whoa. <laughs> Cut that. Cut that. <laughs> Guys, I have a policy proposal because I'm reading about this concern that they have um, with where to dump radioactive water from certain nuclear power plants. And there's a question of whether they dump it into the Hudson uh, okay. and all these other things. <laughs> but you guys know that I'm a policy wonk. And so I'm, I'm solutions oriented. Sure. What if we made prosecutors drink it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a two birds situation. I can think of an esophagus or two where we could dump that. <laughs> 
you know, I think what pissed me off about this is that there's like, you can see the outlines of like, at least a plausible argument uh, about like specific things like charging decisions or whatever, where you wouldn't want every time someone is acquitted necessarily for them to turn around and have a lawsuit against the person who charged them or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem with like the reasonable argument is that it, the problem for the court is that it doesn't get you to the policy solution you want, which is blanket immunity for everything a prosecutor does. Right. Right. And the other thing is they don't like take seriously. I think the medical malpractice stuff is is a good comparison. They make it sound like that'd be the end of the world, but the reality would just be that you know you just have insurance. Right. right. <laughs> you yeah. Just have right. malpractice insurance. Right. Like yeah. every other lawyer and professional <laughs> that can be sued for malpractice. Exactly. Like that's right. It's not even asking that much. That's the worst part. Like other lawyers aren't treated this nicely by the court, right? Right. It's, yeah. it's only these ones who can destroy people's lives. Right. Yep. Like we are insulating the people who have the most power. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And it's worth noting, like Ree was talking about how this was the Ku Klux Klan Act, uh, you know, post reconstruction. And so obviously this was very much aimed at state officials and blah, blah, blah. But like specifically, right, like prosecutors are law enforcement and like specifically law enforcement, right? Like our law enforcement apparatus is very much a descendant of you know, the slave patrols and right. shit like that in the sure. South. And yeah. and like, this was like the locus of concern, right? right. It's not just exactly. like, oh, these were one of many state officials. Like cops and prosecutors are yes. like the thing this is worried about. Right. <laughs> right. Like think about who this even like leaves, like Congress passes this because- Southern state officials are abusing the rights of freed slaves and their allies. But now the court is functionally immunizing cops and prosecutors. Who does that fucking leave? Yeah. Right. Like you get to sue some like administrative official in the county or something. What, what? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And so just an example, a good Supreme Court case from the 30s. Yeah. yeah. But an example of how prosecutors and law enforcement have been a problem for a very long time in this country. There's this case called Powell v. Alabama, where these nine black kids who were, my recollection is like riding a a railroad, hopped on or something, got accused of raping two white women. They were kids, they were out of state, they, you know, they weren't from Alabama. And the incident was, I think, on March 25th, and they were arraigned on the 31st, and they were indicted and tried within like a few days. Nine kids, three trials, one day. It all happened on one day. Yeah. The uh, judge appointed the entire Alabama bar to defend them. Of course, that meant nobody was defending them in point of fact. They had like no counsel and the prosecutors just went ahead with this. Just a total sham trial that everybody involved knew was a sham trial. And in this case, the Supreme Court said this was a violation of the 14th Amendment, mainly due process, but also the Sixth Amendment was mentioned, you know, right to counsel stuff. Good case, classic case. And those prosecutors would be absolutely immune if those kids tried to sue them. You have no recourse there. Sorry. Yeah. 
So stepping back a little bit, just sort of an overview of immunity doctrines, right? Because prosecutors aren't the only officials who get immunity like this. Most people who listen to this podcast certainly have heard about qualified immunity and how it frequently protects cops from liability when they frequently violate people's civil rights. There's also judicial immunity, meaning judges enjoy a kind of immunity also from lawsuits. All of these immunity doctrines are related, but they do differ from each other. First off, important to know that qualified immunity doesn't just apply to police. It applies to other official actors, but it differs from prosecutorial immunity in that, as it says, it's qualified, right? Like when certain legal conditions are met, a police officer can get qualified immunity and be shielded from a civil rights lawsuit. At least in theory, when a police officer would not get immunity and could still be sued, right? Just a quick note that we did an episode on qualified immunity back in summer 2020, if you're interested in listening to that. Now, prosecutorial immunity and judicial immunity are different. Peter mentioned uh, a little bit ago, these are absolute immunity doctrines. A prosecutor who is engaged in the business of prosecuting cannot be sued under 1983 for those actions even if we all agree that somebody's civil rights were violated. Mm -hmm. Like a judge looking at this case, the lawyers looking at this case would agree that somebody's constitutional rights were violated, right? An example is Brady violations. Every time a Brady violation happens, somebody's constitutional rights are violated, even in those cases where everybody looking at it agrees that those constitutional rights have been broken. They were not protected in the system there is still absolute immunity for the people who perpetrated that constitutional rights violation. The entire premise of the doctrine is that a judge can say, on one hand, your constitutional rights were violated, but on the other, the prosecutor is still immune. That person is absolutely immune from a civil rights lawsuit. Yeah. One one thing I want to add to that is that there's sort of a distinction between actions and people that we should highlight, meaning, like we've mentioned, Prosecutors are absolutely immune when they are doing the duties of a prosecutor, right? Right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you can murder someone when you're a prosecutor and be immune from a lawsuit or whatever, right? Right. There are things that are technically outside the scope of a prosecutor's duties that would theoretically be something you could still sue them for. But the basic rule is that any time they are engaged in the conduct of a prosecutor in some way, they would be absolutely immune. Right. Yeah. Like an example, if you work with a prosecutor and a prosecutor sexually harasses somebody in the office, right, that's outside the scope. Those aren't actions related to prosecuting. Right. And so they're still liable. Right. You can Mm -hmm. sue them for those harms. Although we'll talk about in a minute how it ends up being pretty broad. Yeah. 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 For sure. One other thing to point out about these immunity doctrines is that they are more or less completely judge created. We talked at the beginning of the episode about what Section 1983 says. There is no immunity doctrine in there, right? There aren't exceptions listed in the statute. It doesn't say, well, these people are liable unless they violate civil rights in X, Y, Z ways, in which case they can't be sued. That's not in the law. What's happened here is that public officials started getting fucking sued in the 1960s. And then as those lawsuits started to make their ways, you know, through the courts, judges started doing 
policymaking. They started to carve out these spaces where 1983 suddenly couldn't be applied. Congress did not write this into the law and never did. These immunity doctrines are completely judicially made. Do you think this has anything to do with the fact that a lot of judges used to be prosecutors? I Hmm. I think it's related. I mean, they're all they're all like in this system together, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it's worth talking about what prosecutorial immunity looks like now in the modern era, what this has sort of wrought. And we've got, I think, a couple of good examples. There was a big drama seven or eight years ago in California involving a man named Johnny Baca, who was convicted for a double murder, where the only reliable evidence was testimony from a jailhouse snitch. Yeah. The snitch, the informant, received a lighter sentence on his own charge in exchange for his testimony. But the state prosecutor's office lied about that in court, claiming that he received nothing in exchange. The conviction gets challenged, and the state attorney general office, headed at the time by Vice President Kamala Harris, Hmm. decided to press forward on appeal anyway. They only changed course when the judges at the Ninth Circuit asked the prosecution why they'd want to defend a conviction obtained by lying prosecutors and threatened to expressly name names at the prosecutor's office in their opinion. So after that, the AG's office backs off and stops defending the conviction, not because they cared about anyone's constitutional rights, but because they were scared of getting loudly called out. Yeah. Right. And I'm pointing to this because this is ostensibly the most liberal state in the country. Right. Mm -hmm. With a prosecutor's office headed at the time by one of the most prominent Democrats in the country now in 2010. The Northern California Innocence Project published a report covering 707 cases where California state courts found prosecutorial misconduct between 1997 and 2009. 80% of the convictions were upheld despite the misconduct, and only six prosecutors received any discipline. Yeah. 707 cases, six prosecutors receiving any discipline at all. Right. So that's below 1%. (laughs) If you're not a math person. (laughs) If we're crunching numbers. (laughs) And again, this is California, right? I mean, there is no state in this country that is doing this like particularly well, right? That has a coherent system for holding prosecutors accountable. It's a fucking nightmare everywhere you look. And that's what like immunity has wrought. Yeah. You don't get a rate of sub one percent discipline for prosecutorial misconduct and 80 percent of the convictions being upheld without an immunity doctrine like this. Right. Mm -hmm. It has completely shut down accountability for prosecutors. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, we talk a lot about like police brutality, police misconduct, you know, the power that the state exercises over people and communities through the police. But we talk a lot less about how prosecutors are agents of the state wielding immense power that they often use unjustly and just as violently. Right. Mm -hmm. Though it might not be physical violence in the same way that police do. 
Prosecutorial misconduct ruins people's lives. It does kill people. People are in prison right now because prosecutors withheld evidence. They knowingly used bad investigators, bad cops, bad informants. They used witnesses they knew were lying on the stand. They prosecute people in retaliation for legally protected behavior or simply behavior they don't like. On and on and on, right? The National Registry of Exonerations says that there have been more than 3,300 exonerations in the U.S. since 1989. Note, of course, that this is necessarily a fraction of the actual number of wrongly convicted people because this is people who have been exonerated. So you're just talking for the most part about people who got long prison sentences for something, right? This isn't the wrongful conviction of someone for just possession of drugs or theft or simple assault. Those convictions ruin lives, too. But of those 3,300 exonerations that the National Registry has tracked, about half of them have recorded or confirmed prosecutorial misconduct as part of that underlying wrongful conviction. Again, think about the scale at which this is actually happening, right? When you're not just talking about cases for which there can be an exoneration process because new evidence is discovered or another person confesses or whatever, which is a tiny, tiny percentage of cases. Many people are in prison right now because of prosecutorial misconduct that violated their constitutional rights and they cannot sue those prosecutors and there is no accountability and nothing changes. Yeah, A particularly egregious example I wanted to talk about is Bill Higgins in Pennsylvania, who was a DA who was trading sex for leniency with female defendants. And he's been disbarred. He was actually charged criminally with 31 misdemeanors for which he pled guilty in exchange for no jail time. He has not been sued, and I believe because... Handing out lenient sentences or, or charging decisions are immune, right? <laughs> like that is protected prosecutorial conduct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So pretty disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be DeSantis's attorney general. <laughs> <laughs> which I think leads to the next point I wanted to talk about, which is that, you know, this idea that the absolute immunity has a boundary, which is it has to be within the scope of prosecutorial duties, how that's not very limiting, right? That's like a really malleable standard. And what it allows for is a lot of unethical conduct in the course of prosecuting, right? Whether it is, you know, like Peter said, retributive charging decisions, piling on a bunch of ridiculous charges and onerous sentences because you don't like that the defendant is not negotiating a plea deal and making you go to trial, or you just don't like the way they look, or you're racist, or you're sexist, or whatever, right? But like one example that I think is just so ridiculous is Brady violations. So Brady v. Maryland is the Supreme Court case that basically says defendants are entitled to exculpatory evidence, evidence that exonerates them, evidence that they can use in their defense that's within the control of the district attorney, right? They have to hand that over so that you can properly defend yourself. The failure to turn this over is a 14th Amendment due process violation, right? Like this is a black letter law, uncontroversial thing. This is a duty of the prosecutor, Mm -hmm. a constitutional requirement that the prosecutor hand this information over to the defendants. If they do not, 
they are nonetheless immune because under this rubric, the decision of whether or not to hand over Brady material is one related to their prosecutorial duties. Whether or not I will do my prosecutorial duties is is included. Like not doing your duty as a prosecutor is included in that that scope of behavior. Like affirmatively deciding to subvert the entire judicial system to lie to the court, right? right? To suborn perjury, to withhold evidence. Those things are considered within the scope of prosecutorial duties, which is such a fucking stupid way to think about duties. You can just like look at the words, right? Right. (laughs) Like in order for them to be immune, it has to be quote unquote within the scope of their prosecutorial duties. And yet, when they choose affirmatively choose choose not to abide by those duties, the court is saying that that's still within the scope of their duties somehow. Right. right. It makes absolutely no sense. Completely nonsensical. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So the only thing you can get from that is like a new trial. You can get a conviction thrown out or a sentencing right. thrown out, and that's not nothing. But it's also like being charged sucks. Going to trial sucks. Right. Being detained. Pre-trial sucks. Like, this is all very bad, damaging things. Also, you don't automatically get your case thrown out, right? I just read that statistic from California where 80% of convictions were upheld with misconduct. I'm sure many of those were Brady violations. Absolutely, yeah. The court will still have discretion not to throw your conviction out, even if there was a Brady violation. That happened in Brady itself. Yeah. Brady itself, they upheld the conviction and just said that they had to redo sentencing Mm -hmm. because under Maryland law... It wouldn't have been admissible or some shit like that. It wouldn't have been like fully exonerative. I mean, it's just garbage. It's absolute garbage. Yeah. You know, one point to make here is in a post Roe v. Wade world and with conservative lawyer self-righteousness at an all time high, I think it's worth contextualizing these immunity doctrines within the broader context of the conservative legal movement, right? The conservative opposition to abortion rights and sexual privacy rights are ostensibly that those rights are not found within the Constitution or any statute that they're made up by judges. Right. And yet here we have an immunity doctrine that shields prosecutors completely made up by judges, despite there being a federal law allowing for lawsuits against all state officials when they violate constitutional rights without qualification. Where's the conservative outrage? Right. Conservatives would have you believe that their legal movement was formed in genuine good faith opposition to a mode of legal interpretation rather than any more distinctly ideological goals. And yet they spent 50 years frothing at the mouth about a very specific set of judicially created rights while ignoring others almost completely. And That's how we're so confident on this show sometimes, that they're full of shit, that it's a bad faith operation, right? That it's not a good faith intellectual project, but a defensive outgrowth of reactionary impulses. You don't need to humor their bullshit when they start talking to you about the scope of substantive due process or whatever the fuck it is in any given case. They don't care about any of that shit. We know they don't because you can look at it right here. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot in this episode about judge-made doctrine. This is an important law, blah, blah, blah. But what all that means, though, is that the road to change is going to be very hard 
we're going to have to change the makeup of the Supreme Court. We're going to have to change the way the Democratic Party thinks and new cases and new law and, and all this shit. But here, this is very simple. This is a very simple fix, right? Like, just like with qualified immunity, with prosecutorial immunity, Congress could pass a law tomorrow that limited prosecutorial immunity or eliminated it altogether, just like it can with qualified immunity. They could do that. It wouldn't be hard. It just takes some work on our part in demanding it of them. Yeah. And I think this brings me back to sort of rolling back the promise of 1983, rolling back the promise of this initial new Reconstruction Congress, right? Right after the Civil War. Like as the country is coming out of slavery times, there's clearly this recognition of this idea in Section 1983 that state actors themselves are complicit in racial violence, right? It's not just rogue actors. It's not just the KKK. You know, this is me talking, not Congress. But yeah, there's this hint at a recognition that like it's the KKK, but the KKK is the police and the KKK is the prosecutor too. And you see the federal government beginning to think through like what accountability for constitutional harm might look like. But of course, this is America. So all of this gets muddied. All of this starts being interpreted through a judiciary that has this sole discretion that can hide behind the rule of law when interpreting and ultimately policymaking outside of Congress, outside the congressional space. Prosecutorial immunity is in many ways a failure of our legal system, but I want to also just talk about prosecuting more broadly. Prosecutorial immunity is a facet of the problem with prosecuting, but like as a prison abolitionist, I would say this is part and parcel with the institution and the practice of prosecuting in the U.S. Just like qualified immunity shields cops from liability because every aspect of policing is fucked up, is racist, is predicated on social control of racial minorities, people who are disabled, people who are not wealthy. You know, I want people to hear that prosecuting is one and the same. If you have been introduced to prison abolition, you may have, you know, sort of a vague understanding that prisons are a social tool where we process and intern and cage society's undesirable people. Prison is a cage that we convince ourselves is a solution to the societal problems we are frankly too cowardly and too violent to actually solve. And I want to invite people to think about prosecutors also, to think about them as the engineers of the prison industrial complex right in lockstep with the police. Mass incarceration is fueled not just by police, but by the lawyers who police hand their cases to, the lawyers who stand in court every day and ask judges to cage people because they don't have money to pay to get out, to charge people for crimes of poverty and illness, to seek retributive and harsh sentences on people who have done so-called illegal activity in a system where we have criminalized so much behavior that illegality is a joke. And even when someone has committed some sort of interpersonal harm or interpersonal violence, the role of the prosecutor is to railroad, to increase surveillance, to cage and to introduce more and more and more state violence into people's lives in their communities. The prosecutor does not have the tools to achieve justice. It's not a part of the job. It's not a part of the institution. It simply is not a tool at their disposal, right? The role of the prosecutor is to seek legal punishment over and over and over and over in a system where we know that it doesn't work. It doesn't work 
It doesn't make us safer. It doesn't decrease crime. It doesn't provide justice and accountability. It doesn't change people's lives for the better. It creates more and more and more and more suffering. So fuck prosecutorial immunity that shields them from liability when they blatantly violate people's constitutional rights. But fuck this whole system that normalizes that level of violence constantly on a micro and macro level every day for millions of people. And fuck prosecutors, too. Well said. Except if you listen to the show, then we love you. I feel like we might have talked about this on the podcast before, but it is telling as to where prosecutors fit in like the American psyche that I was once at a law school public interest job fair and prosecutors were there. And I thought to myself, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Like not in an outraged way, but I sort of very... In a confused way. Right, right. Went to someone and was like, why are prosecutors at the public interest fair? Mm -hmm. And one student who overheard me walked over and explained that he's a public interest student who's going to be a prosecutor. And I was genuinely so confused as to how that could be anyone's perception of prosecutors that I didn't really (laughs) even engage. But in some ways, it's sort of obvious what was happening, right? If you buy into like half of this myth of like an actually functioning justice system, then you can envision a world in which prosecutors are just cogs that are like efficiently moving justice through the machine. Right. Or doing public service, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Through that legal profession. Yeah. They're part of our uh, justice system, right? And as flawed as it may be or whatever, right? They are doing their best to make sure that justice is done. It serves the public interest in some vague way. Now, of course, they are the soldiers of the machine of the state and inflict tremendous amounts of violence, which to me always felt like common sense. You know, I wasn't an abolitionist law student here. I was just sort of a mildly left of center kid who was like, how is this even possible that someone would perceive of it like this? But I think it's really telling about how, not just how law schools treat prosecutors, right, which is probably an episode in and of itself, but like where prosecutors sit in the American psyche. yeah. It's like a diseased way of looking at power and state violence that anyone could even entertain for a second the idea that it's a public interest job. All right, let's wrap this shit. I'm trying to watch TV on my new TV. (laughs) Next week, in Ray Galtz, we're talking juvenile justice with our friend Josie Duffy Rice, who will be selling us on her new project, Unreformed, her extremely good new podcast. It's super good. Which she'll be talking about. Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Thank you for subscribing. We appreciate you guys so much. Thank you. Uh, we promise we'll do a, an Arch Enemies event soon. We've been dropping the ball, but we're getting back on it. Don't worry. Don't worry. That's right. That's right. All right. Go Chiefs. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. 
Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. The energy when the Chiefs won, because I was like, you know, full of adrenaline. They hit a field goal, and I was like, fuck it, let's go. <laughs> and like, I couldn't help it. I was wasted, like absolutely trashed. And the last like 30 seconds of the game from the field goal through the very end, I just kept being like, give me one more. Give me one more. And it, later, my friend was like, what were you talking about? And I was like, oh, one more ring. <laughs> one more championship. But I guess I was just like very drunkenly constantly saying, give me one more. And no one had any fucking idea what I was talking about. I was just like <laughs> the belligerent Chiefs fan. <laughs> I had to pretend I was an, an Eagles fan in, in the Uber this morning. And guy was like, tough game. I was like, <laughs> We'll be back, though. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Next year. Next year, bro.